Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, COVID-19 cases double every five days here in Hamilton. First Ontario Centre being turned into a homeless shelter and a special new bylaw for physical distancing. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger will be in to talk about all of that. Ontario has the capacity to do 13,000 COVID-19 tests every day, but we're not doing anywhere near that. Premier Doug Ford's upset about it, and we'll tell you why. And what would it look like, and what's it going to be when we return to post-pandemic normalcy? Professor Allison Thompson joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting day at City Hall yesterday. Uh, there was a, a town hall that you heard, of course, here on CHML. Uh, and uh, some information that I think is very germane to what's going on here. There's also a, a, a city council meeting. It's not business as usual at Hamilton City Hall, but there is a business going on, and a couple of important bylaws were passed yesterday. Joining us to talk about all of this is a Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time. I hope you are well today. Uh, well today, Bill, and uh, we're all uh, we're all still doing what we're doing. It, you know, is it week four already? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and counting, and counting for yeah, some time, I guess. Good. Yeah, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we're, we're all anxious to get this behind us, but, uh, you know, people are doing what they should be doing, and I appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit about the, the town hall last night. You and, uh, of course, Paul Johnson was there, and, uh, and uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the medical officer of health. Uh, some yep. interesting ground that was covered on that. And uh, there's a consistency here, because I know it happened at the council meeting that you guys did yesterday as well. Uh, and it has to do with, the, with as you've been talking about, with the, some of the commercials you've recorded here, the physical distancing. Uh, and and I don't I I don't want to say that hey you know, nobody's complying because I think the overwhelming majority of us are uh, doing what we're supposed to be doing but there's some rather flagrant examples of people that just figure it doesn't apply to them uh, which I suppose is one of the reasons why that you guys had to pass this bylaw the other day exactly and uh, you know I, you know kind of gentle persuasion or persuasion uh, for some people doesn't seem to work and uh, they either not taking this seriously or, or just cavalierly you know blowing by it and say well you know we're going to do what we want to do no matter what so uh now as of yesterday or today uh, you know our, our bylaw enforcement officers and our police officers can uh, ticket people that are not uh, you know socially or, or physically separating uh, people that are gathering in groups or people that are, you know, beating up at the trails or beating up at, uh, you know, a sports park and uh, picking up a game of soccer or football. Uh, all of those are uh, do not do uh, events right now. And uh, if if after a warning to ask them to comply, they do not comply, then uh, ticketing will ensue. So it's $500, uh, you know what, uh, per event. So if you persist, uh, you know, you'll get a ticket each and every time. Uh, they'll, they'll also be looking at, uh, you know, and I, I say this gently, churches that uh, right now, you know, might want to, you know, come together. Uh, I think most of them will quite understand that they shouldn't, but there may be denominations or congregations out there that might try and slip through the cracks. Don't do it because uh, we're going to be looking for that as well. And it's specifically prohibited in the uh, in the emergency declaration of the province. And there's a uh, fighting and ticketing that applies to that as well. So, uh, you know what, weather is getting nicer. Uh, you know, we all understand the pressure to want to get out. Do it uh, Do it locally. Do it uh, in and around the house uh, or, you know, walk to your neighborhood park and get some air and fresh air and then go home. Uh, you know, try and stay home as much as possible. But, you know, people need to get out. Uh, so, uh, you know, in your neighborhood, uh, on your street, maintain that social separation or physical distancing. 
But uh, do get out and get some air, enjoy the sunshine. And, uh, you know, our mental health and mental well-being is equally as important as uh, maintaining this uh, physical separation. So uh, we need to stay sane. And uh, part of that is uh, getting some fresh air and some sunshine. So hopefully people can do do that, but still do that uh, from the safety of their homes or in uh, in their immediate neighborhoods, staying apart. You guys are getting painted as the bad guys in this. I'm sure you've seen some of the response on social media and in letters to the editor. I'm certainly getting tons of emails about this as well, saying that this is overkill. Uh, and it, it's probably not a bad idea to remind everybody, Mr. Mayor, that, uh, that yes, this is a city council bylaw, but it's done uh, at the request of the medical officer of health, the people that are in charge of public health for this community. That's this. This is not a political decision. This is a medical decision. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the desire to have people comply is, uh, is not just, uh, you know, a frivolous thing. It's, uh, it's a, it's a requirement because, uh, you can spread this virus. And so I've, I've said, I've, I've compared this to, you know, people yelling fire in the, in the theater. You, you're needlessly, uh, necessarily putting people in harm's way. Uh, you're doing the same thing. You're not maintaining that physical separation. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're, you have to assume you are a carrier of this virus. Uh, that carry, that can, that can then transfer, even if you may not even know about it, unwittingly know about it, and uh, and transfer that to someone else. And they take that home, and then they, that's how community spread happens. So, medical officer of health has uh, fully fully agreed that this is a a, a requirement right now. And uh, if people are paying attention based on the good information that we're sharing with them then uh, some fighting uh, needs to ensue. You know, make me the bad guy. If it saves a life or two or three or five as a result of, uh, you know, fighting somebody and getting them to comply to what we're asking them to do, then uh, I'm I'm okay being the bad guy. Make me the bad guy, but uh, I'm going to be sure to make sure that uh, everyone in our community is doing their part. The, uh, the the goal here, as you've talked about many times, as has Dr. Richardson and everybody else that's involved in the in the, the control of uh, the crisis control in this community, anyway, uh, to flatten the curve. I mean, we see that upward curve of the number of new incidents, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and and the point that I, I guess you've tried to drive home here, as the others have, is uh, if you don't like the way things are, then just comply. Because it's not going to get better until we start to flatten that curve. And we're not going to flatten the curve if we're not obeying the rules. Exactly, and uh, you know, the sooner the sooner we, uh, we we obey the rules, the sooner we can flatten that curve, and the sooner we can get past this issue. So, uh, you know, flattening the curve is really all about is protecting the integrity of the healthcare system. So, we know that people are going to get sick. Most people are going to have uh, you know a bad time of it, and they are going to be at home. But we're we're already hearing about the cases of recovery, and that's uh, that's good news. I think people are are, are doing well. Uh, folks with underlying conditions are particularly at risk. So it doesn't matter what age you are, but certainly the uh, the, the seniors with with uh, already compromised immune systems would be uh, particularly at risk. And uh, so, so doing this is is really to to help save lives, get past this issue, and protect the integrity of the healthcare system. So right now. Uh, we, we have people in, in shelters, uh, you know, going into the first Ontario center because they have no place to go. Uh, we have long-term care facilities that are struggling with, uh, with the coronavirus and, and trying to maintain some equilibrium in their facilities, all, all of which is geared towards having a minimal amount of people having to go to intensive care in our hospitals. Fortunately, our hospitals are also looking at uh, the the surge that they're expecting, so they're expanding their ability to take people into intensive care. Uh, so uh, if we can manage that, flatten the curve and manage that over time, 
then uh, everyone that needs treatment will get treatment, and everyone that can, can recover will recover. Uh, if we don't manage to do that, then we're going to have a situation like they had in Italy where, where some terrible choices have to be made about who gets what type of equipment, who goes where, and who gets the health care, and who doesn't, because we've, we're overrunning our health care system. It, doesn't have, it would not have the capacity to maintain that, that spike or surge. That's what flattening the curve is about. And so uh, we're doing that right now. I think we're uh, we're, we're being successful. Uh, if we if we let that slip and slide and, and stop being what, stop doing what we're doing, then uh, we can see a spike in our community in no time, and that can overrun our healthcare system. And then we're going to have some pretty awful choices to make. It's instructive to look at some of the other countries that have gone through. I guess not their spike yet because I mean there's still some newer cases being reported. But those that have been even quasi successful at flattening that curve have done it by exactly what we're talking about doing here. Uh, lots of testing, and we'll get to that a little bit later on in the show, and physical distancing. As a matter of fact, most of them had went through total shutdown. Uh, and, yeah. and, and you may, and I know there's people right now thinking, well, that's pretty draconian, but that's a, that's how you beat this thing. Uh, and they, that's why the rules are being put in place here. And as our former chief of police, Glenn DeCare, always used to say, compliance is free. Uh, you know, you know, it's, you got a choice to make here. Yeah, and uh, and you know, the 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 front line in all of this is uh, is not the healthcare system. They're they're the backstop. They're the ones that are uh, they're going to be backing everybody up if uh, if we uh, try to do the right thing. The front line is every individual in our community doing the right thing, maintaining that physical separation and stopping the community spread. We've already had our event uh, relative to the vacations that people took over the, uh, over the, uh, the, 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 or, or the, uh, the March break. Uh, a lot of folks coming back, and obviously we saw some, uh, some impacts as a result of that. But now we're, we're essentially talking about community spread and how that is moving around in our community. And so far... I think, uh, as the Dr. Richardson pointed out yesterday, uh, we're seeing some success that this is uh, this is uh, taking hold and this is working, and so we, but we we cannot uh, take our foot off the gas on this. This is not something that you could do for a couple of days and then relax everything and go back to normal. We can't do that. We can't do that until the medical officers of health in the country say, "Look, we're uh, we're at a point now that we can ease up a little bit and get some areas of the economy back up and running." So, uh, you know, people uh, need to understand that. And, and, and again, if they don't, then, uh, you know, obviously some people, uh, you know, c- compliance has to come with a bill. Uh, it's not unlike uh, speeding or any other uh, infractions that we have in the community. We're always uh, putting these things in place to, to deal with the, the, the few folks that are you know, prepared to uh, stretch the rules, break the laws, or break the requirements that they're, uh, they're asked to adhere to. Uh, the vast majority in all cases are, you know, Stop at the stop signs, uh, you know, make sure that they don't speed in our community. And they are listening to the advice of our medical officer of health by maintaining separation and distance. You know, I, I, one of our uh, nieces is having a birthday this week. And, we're, of course, we traditionally would celebrate, get together, and uh, celebrate not only Easter but birthdays. Well, we're going to do a drive-by hello uh, for her birthday and uh, let her know that we are thinking of her nonetheless, but that everyone's going to go home and maintain that physical separation. So, uh, you know, we can do it. You can do it. Uh, everyone in the community uh, is able to do it. Uh, if we do it successfully, then we're going to have a, uh, an opportunity for most of us to, uh, to come back and celebrate all of the great holidays that, uh, that are coming up throughout the rest, the rest of the year. Uh, there's, I, I know you guys meet on a regular basis, uh, on a daily basis, you and Dr. Richardson and Paul Johnson and, and others yeah. on the team. 
Uh, and because you've got to pivot. I mean, situations change. I know earlier this week you and I had the discussion about this past weekend, which was, again, a nice weather weekend, and there were some people that were not uh, physically distancing themselves in some of the downtown areas. Many of them were homeless people or people that had been in some of the shelters. Uh, so you had to make a plan. All of a sudden, okay, we got to fix this up now. My understanding now is that First Ontario Centre comes into play here. Then. Right. So, uh, you know, we've had uh, you know, challenges in many of the homeless shelters, so there's a number of them in the community, but there are the staffing staffing issues are starting to take hold. Some people are sick or not able to go in. And so managing those has become very, very difficult when they're scattered all over the place. So we're now trying to consolidate the uh, the homeless shelter, med shelter, uh, into First Ontario Place so that... Uh, you know, less less staff can manage more people. Uh, you know, more collectively in one place, and so I think that's uh, that's helpful. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, golf courses, and I know that uh, you know lots of folks have said, well, why why aren't they classified as parks? Because you know they're green space and they're uh, wide open. And why, why can't we go there? Well, golf courses have sand traps and, and water on them. They have equipment on them. Uh, all kinds of potential hazards for people out there. So there's a, there's a liability issue as well as, uh, you know, it's really probably not set up to be a park. And so that's why we closed them to uh, prevent people from going there and getting into some hazards that are already part of a golf course. So uh, the, we're, we're, we made that happen. Uh, we equally, lots of complaints about the leaf and yard collection. Sorry, folks. Uh, you know what we uh, we decided to do because we had a a, a manpower person power issue. Some some people in public works are also getting ill or have to self isolate, and so we only had so many staff available to collect the garbage. And so we've decided to narrow it down to just the garbage, and we're asking people to hang onto their leaf and yard waste if they can. If they can't, then uh, just take it to the uh, transfer station. It's free wide open uh, you can go in there anytime and drop it off into the uh, collection boxes there and uh, be rid of that leaf and yard waste which you know everyone's doing their spring cleaning in the backyard i understand but uh we didn't have the person power to uh, to be able to collect all of that so we thought well we better cancel that so that we could continue to collect the garbage which is uh, much more of a priority well, and this is, uh, again, going along the theme that we've been talking about for the last four weeks now. This is not business as usual. I mean, municipalities like Hamilton and others have had to make choices, and it's not a cost-cutting measure. It's not to try to save a few bucks. It's simply because, you know, sure. like you say, it's a staffing level at this stage. You have city workers are out there in the middle of this, and they're getting sick, and uh, I, I understand that totally. I mean, yes, you can, like I say, it's not that difficult to simply get in there, and it's free to go to a transfer station and take it. So... Uh, on and on it goes. We're heading into a long weekend for a lot of us, Mr. Mayor, and uh, uh, I don't know uh, exactly what people's plans are, as you say, with Easter and Passover and a number of other things right now, but uh, adhering to the rules, the physical distancing still, I think, needs to be job one here for us, and we need to, I don't think you can underscore that enough. No, we can't, and, uh, you know, we'll continue to message on that uh, through the media and, uh, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, the congregations out there aren't coming together. Uh, I think... Uh, Certainly, most of the uh, the leadership and the uh, in the uh, the uh, the community has uh, has understood that there's a need for uh, people to stay apart, and they're uh, they're doing their own messaging in their various congregations, and we're asking people to uh, to celebrate in different ways. So uh, you know, use use all the technology that's out there. Uh, Zoom is very busy these days; it's very effective. Uh, my family has used uh, House Party, which is another uh, platform that you could use where everyone can be seen and everyone can be heard. Uh, it's a great way to connect with uh, with family. Uh, use all of those resources to uh, still have some semblance of uh, of celebration. And 
you know, do do what you can within your own home or within your own neighborhood. Uh, you know, maintaining that that social distance. Uh, it uh, you'll be doing the right thing for all of us by being part of the team to help knock this thing down. And so, uh, you know, this is uh, this is all about the collective good. Uh, it is really about uh, the community rallying together. And I see all kinds of uh, demonstrations of her- heroism and kindness. Uh, people sharing resources, uh, helping one another, helping neighbors. Uh, that's the kind of community we want to have at any event. And, and this kind of a crisis and, uh, and uh, event certainly brings out the best in people uh, in most cases, and sometimes it brings out the worst. And so, uh, you know what, we uh, we thank everyone for all of the great work they're doing out there. Uh, we all share the anxiety and the challenges that come with it. Uh, but I think most of us understand why it's necessary and how important it is to maintain this until at such time as, uh, as the uh, the health authorities say it's time time to relax. And unfortunately, that that sounds like it's uh, it's 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 a month or more away rather than at least away. so at least let's yeah get, we've got a lot more time to go here. Yourself. Yeah, Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thanks so much. Stay healthy, and uh, we'll talk again uh, very shortly. Appreciate the time today. Have a great Easter weekend. Thank you all. You too. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Premier has made uh, daily comments, of course, as well, just after noontime every day. He addresses the uh, the people of Ontario. Yesterday he talked about, I think, a very important subject, and, and that being, of course, testing. Uh, we've always been told since the beginning of this pandemic that the two things that are really important, that are really going to do something about, about flattening the curve is physical distancing and lots and lots of testing. Well, we got off to kind of a shaky start here in the province of Ontario. Uh, others have come on board since then in the last couple of weeks, so we thought there'd be some different numbers, but apparently uh, we're not testing nearly as many people as we probably should. And uh, yesterday the Premier was pretty upset about it. We're going to move forward on a rapid fashion to make sure every single person uh, possible can get tested. And we need to start uh, making sure that we test the frontline healthcare workers, test the long-term care as a priority, because that, that's where we're seeing it spread uh, fastest. Well, uh, the numbers are uh, rather interesting. Uh, apparently, we have uh, quite a bit of capacity right now for you to be able to do these sorts of things. Uh, the numbers uh, initially were pretty slow, but uh, apparently, we can handle here in Ontario about thirteen thousand tests daily, and we're only going to do about thirty. We are only doing about thirty-five hundred. That's the, why the premier is pretty ticked off about that. Joining us to talk about the the whole process here, Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, who uh, covered Queens Park and Parliament Hill for many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you with us again. I hope you're doing well. I'm good, Bill. Yourself? Yeah, hanging in there, hanging in there. Uh, loving the social uh, isolation here, but uh, you know what? It is what it is. It's what we have to do. Uh, you and I talked about this before. When we get into crisis situations, uh, you really get the measure of our elected officials as to how they respond uh, on a daily basis. In many cases like this, and uh, uh, I, I think a lot of people, I think it's fair to say, have been uh, quite surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised, by the way that Ford and his team have handled this. I, I definitely. Uh... I definitely agree with you. I mean, a, a lot of people, and the polls show that uh, a lot of people have support both uh, Ford and Trudeau and uh, how they responded to this. For, for the life of me, I do not understand why there has been so few tests go on. I mean, uh, you know, Premier Ford likes to say every day, you know, the buck stops with him. That's fine. That's all well and good. And it's a good thing to say. But he's not responsible for somebody deciding 
whether to do testing or not. I mean, 3,500, and we're able to do, what did you say, 15,000 or something like that a day? Yeah. I mean, come on, who is at fault here? Somebody's not not pull, pulling their weight here. I mean, that, that's just ridiculous. Every other country, with a lot less going for them than Ontario does, or, or jurisdictions, and they're doing far more than that every day. I, I just don't get it. Well, and, and again, you start getting into crunching numbers. I'm just watching Dr. Tan with the, her, the national numbers they're talking about, and uh, they just made a statement here a second ago that said that on average the, the Canadian testing is done at a higher per capita rate than many of the other countries that are dealing with this, and that's that's well and good. That's fine. But here in Ontario, as, as we mentioned, we got off to kind of a shaky start, and, and the minister was quite fair about this and upfront about this, saying we just don't have the facilities for it. But as you know, because it's been heavily reported, a number of private sector labs have jumped in board, Life Labs and a few others, that said, hey, we can do this for you too. So now we have the capacity for 13,000. And I, for the life of me, don't understand why we're not doing 13,000 tests a day then if we have the capacity for it. Every frontline worker, every worker at an old age home, anybody that has to deal with the public directly like that should be tested, period. Again, I, I don't understand why this is not happening. And for them to say that on average that, you know, there's more tests going on in Canada, I don't believe that for a minute. I think she's, she's you know, wrong on that because Ontario's your biggest province and you would only uh, deduce from that that you know that there would be more testing going on here, and there isn't. My question is why? Why hasn't it gone on? Who's responsible? Because this is a, this is a, you know this is short-sighted to, to say the least. Everybody that you know needs to be tested should be tested, because that I mean, that's how we find out in advance whether they're coming down with the symptoms. Well, there's a couple of things about this, and, and again, I know that Dr. Williams, David Williams, uh, was was at that conference as well yesterday, and he's talking about uh, you know the capacity issue, which is why I think they made the initial determination. Okay, it's only going to be those frontline workers that uh, they're going to be exposed to this, but now that everyone else has jumped on side and we've increased the capacity, why aren't we throwing the net out wider oh. to anybody who who might have symptoms? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's how we're going to nail this down and find out in the general public how far spread how far and wide this this virus is right now we only know when people are coming and they're tested and they're found to be positive and that stuff but we have no idea how wide this is and and that's what they're finding out in the united states is that they just well they don't know basically how many people have got it and how many people are actually dying from it because they don't know because they haven't been tested and basic, basically until it's after the fact. A friend of mine I was talking to about this the other day from another city but uh, who's feeling as if the symptoms were, were starting to, to show and uh, she called uh, the, the public health office as you're supposed to do and she, now she's not one of those frontline workers you know she's not one of the people that uh, from uh, you know healthcare workers or anything like that or long-term care residents or so and essentially what she was told was, look, at if you feel that way and you think you've got the symptoms, assume you have it and just stay home and treat yourself. And if it gets really bad, come to the hospital. In other words, they didn't say, yes, come in here and we'll, we'll test you. They, they're, so we don't know how many people are out there that have, have dealt with this or are dealing with it right now 
who haven't told anybody about it simply because they don't want to or whatever. This is this is being underreported, and I think just about every jurisdiction in the world feels the same way about this. Is we don't understand the magnitude of this yet. Well, information is power, and the power is knowing how widespread it is. At this point, we don't. And you know, it, 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 and like that, that basically gives, makes you want to ask a question. Okay, if we don't know about you know how people or how far spread this is, how long is it going to last? Because it's, there's people out there that have got it, don't know they have it, and they're infecting all kinds of other people. And they may be like the person that you knew that called in. They they may be having all the symptoms, but you know they call and say, "Well, you might want to stay home and just give us a call when you're really sick." Well, well hold on. That that's too late. It's an it's another element to this. For those people that are, are suggesting this is still no big deal, and I've heard some of those comments, and I know you've seen some of them as well over the last little while. It, if if they understand the magnitude of this and just how big this is, uh, and the reason why hospitals are making contingency plans right now to start using hotels for overflow beds, they they seem to get it that they know that there's a a tidal wave out there someplace, and we're not sure when it's going to hit or how big it's going to be when it hits, but it is coming, and it's as you said, it's simply because we don't have all this information. I would have been a lot happier to say to to hear yesterday, uh, and I guess the premiers are feeling the same way that you and I are. Uh, okay, tell us that we were underperforming, but now we've got the capacity and we're going to expand the program. I didn't hear that yesterday. Well, I think that you'll find that will happen, uh, you know, fairly shortly. Uh, this this uh, troubleshooter that the government has taken on, used to work for the city of Toronto, McEwen, and now I think he's at, with the University of Toronto. But I think you'll see things, see things ramp up because this guy has a reputation for, for knowing what to do, and and hopefully he does, and and that they things start to change because it has to, it has to change. We we just can't go along uh, like we have been, and just doing what basically the essentials. Look, look at all the old age homes. It's, people were tested. Maybe we wouldn't have the kind of outbreaks we're seeing and people dying. What we want to avoid here is is what we've seen in other jurisdictions, uh, where there's this overflow, and it's 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 this is a crisis anyway. We understand that, but we, we, as you mentioned, there's there's this situation here where uh, if there's going to be a huge influx like this, and people are going to be overwhelmed, and hospitals are going to get overwhelmed, there are going to be decisions that are going to have to be made about who gets a respirator and who doesn't, and the one who doesn't. It's pretty obvious what might happen to them in the in the short term or the long term, I suppose, depending on their their physical situation. We talked to experts so far over the last couple of weeks, anyway, who seem to say we're managing. We're so far we're managing this. It's it's a, it's a crisis, but we've got the capacity to do this. We've got we're a little short on ventilators, but there's some other stuff and equipment that's coming. But if they get overwhelmed. We're going to look just like Italy. We're going to look like New York City is, is these days, and that's that's not where you want to be. Well, I'll tell you right now, I don't fault for one second the people on the front line. They're no. doing their job, and they're working their ass off. But the point is, I'm blaming the decision makers. Somebody has decided, God knows why, to just do 3500 a day. Like, who would decide that? And was there a committee that decided that? Was it just one person? 
it, it, it literally, I mean, all your listeners are just, I'm sure, sitting out there and shaking their head like, who makes a decision like that when it's so important that we get more people tested? That's what I want to know. Who the heck decided to do this? Well, was this a, a, a political decision, or was it somebody in the ministry no, office? There's no way this is a political decision. I mean, no, I don't mean that way. I mean within you know the bureaucracy there. Yeah, that's that's where you know. I, I mean, what politicians going to say? We should do less testing. You I haven't heard anybody silent. say that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, one of the strongest voices yesterday was, uh, was Dr. Camille Lemieux, who's the chief of family medicine at the University Health Network, saying that doctors and nurses feel that they're worried, they're, they're nervous about even going to work now because they know that the testing that should be completed right now is not being done, and that's putting them in a very precarious position. Well, the ramifications of this are huge. And I hope, and I mean, certainly the premiers identified it, and, and and now this uh, McEwen that they they brought in, I hope he he can get things moving. But th- I mean, this is you know South Korea, if places like that, we're doing thousands and thousands of tests every day. Well, we can do thirteen thousand here in Ontario alone. Well, we should be doing absolutely that and more. One of the things that I, Bill, I, I don't, I remember quite some time ago that there was a lack of materials to do the testing, the chemicals and all that. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't know, I don't think that applies anymore, but I'm not sure. Well, the, the information I saw yesterday on this, and, and these were, again, based on some of the comments that uh, the Dr. Lemieux made, was that was true. When this whole thing started, they were uh, undersupplied and there was a concern. But you're right, I think that's been adjusted. Not only that, but now, as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation here, some of the private sector labs, like Life Labs and others, have stepped up and say, hey, we can do this too. Why don't we help you? So that, that capacity has been increased by, four, by fourfold. So in, in other words, instead of 3,500, we can be doing 13,000. That's almost four times as many tests. It's there. Why aren't we using it? Well, I tell you, it's, to the point, Bill, if I had what I thought was the symptoms, there should be a place where I can go and get tested. I shouldn't have to get someone from the health department to okay it. I should be able to go someplace and get tested, like the Life Labs or whatever. You'd think so. Yeah. And we've seen that in other jurisdictions. I mean, you know, watch some of the, the, the news coverage on this from south of the border, and there are some jurisdictions there in New York State and Philadelphia and down in Louisiana now. Where they actually have, it's like drive-in testing centers. You know, they've got tents set up and everything. There's a certain bit of isolation that's going on there, but, but they can do it right there. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the way to actually get, I think, a, a, a more clear number as to just what we're dealing with here in situations that are, are, let's face it, a rather precarious situation. I mean, we keep getting told that there's going to be a spike here. Well, that's uh, that's basically because we don't know where where this is and who's out there with it. And if somebody who didn't get tested, to go back to the example of my friend who just said, okay, I won't get tested, I guess I'll just hear and write it out, uh, and, and the, the symptoms start to get worse, and they go banging on the door at the emergency room at the hospital all of a sudden. Well, that's an unexpected case because we didn't know that individual had it because they weren't tested. There's, as you mentioned, knowledge is power, and we need more knowledge about this. Yep. And, uh, you know, and sending people home or telling them to stay home, that's all well and good. But, you know, there's a, a husbands and wives that have found their partners uh, going to the bedroom the next morning, and they find them dead. Yeah. That's no good, <laughs> period. There should be a place, 
I don't care if it's a drive-in test, if it's to, you know, go to Life Labs, go wherever, or a tent that's set up. But I should have the ability, everybody in this province should have the ability to go to a place and have themselves tested. If there's a reason why it can't happen, then tell us. But uh, mm-hmm. based on the comments I saw from the Premier yesterday, and, of course, Christine Elliott, the Minister of Health, was there on the podium with the Premier I didn't hear anybody saying, yeah, well, that's just the way it has to be. I mean, they were pretty ticked off about this when they saw these numbers. Well, well, they should be. I would, I would expect them to be ticked off because it doesn't make a lick of sense. And that's what bothers people when things are done that don't make sense. What's, this, what's happening now? You've been around Queen's Park long enough. When the Premier gets a, a statistic like this, that uh, he was almost embarrassed to have to say this, and he got pretty angry the more he talked about it yesterday. Uh, I, I, I don't know if heads are going to roll, but, I mean, I'm sure questions were asked as soon as he got out of that briefing. Well, there's no time for head to roll right now. Uh, right now, they, we've just got to buckle down and, and do the job. And if we've got to do an in, have an inquest into how it was handled later, all so be it. But now is the time, to, you know, not to point fingers, to just to get it done. Well, and that's the discussion we've had, because uh, we see this happening with the federal government, too. And I know that all the leaders are saying all the right stuff, that, well, it's time to take the politics out of this. Uh, not all of them do that. And, and there's still some petty politics that's going on here and some partisanism. Apart, but the reality here is that we do have to set that aside right now. There's more than enough time, once we get over the hump here, to start doing some analysis and what we did right, what we did wrong, and, and all that situation. But right now, goal one should be to simply defeat this virus. And I, there's an argument to be made now here in Ontario that we're not doing all that we can be, and that's pretty troubling. It is. And I'm hoping somebody there is uh, gets a message. And um, at Queen's Park, I know if I was a premier and I heard that, I would have blown a fuse. Well, he's got another briefing coming up today at uh, 12.30. It'll be interesting to see if he's got an update on that and some uh, comments from some of the other folks there. Uh, stay healthy, Richard. Uh, hey, always great to have you on the program. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Bye-bye. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, covered Queen's Park all these many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The way this has seemed to have morphed in the last little while as we head into an, yet another week of uh, physical distancing and, and, and trying to, to flatten this curve is people are going to say, when are we coming out of this at the other end? Uh, you know, how long is this going to take? And I can understand the frustration. And, and you know, I, I keep hearing the phrase, when are we going to get back to normal? I don't know if we're ever going to get back to normal or even define what normal is these days. But what's it going to take? What are the experts going to be looking for to say, okay, it's it's safe to go out again. It's safe to have people at a ball game, whatever the case might be. I, I think we're a long way from that. Let's ask our next guest. Allison Thompson is an associate professor of pharmaceutical sciences and a professor of public health services and a professor of public health sciences at the Daly Lena School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. It's my pleasure. I'm reading an awful lot of data about what's going to happen here, and uh, uh, I, I guess maybe the one that jumped out at me, first of all, was uh, from a, a guy named Aaron Stumpf, who's an epidemiologist at McGill University in Montreal. He says, trying to predict a date when this is going to be over is a fool's errand. Uh, that may be a little abrupt, but I think it's pretty bang on, isn't it? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we have so many different people working on models of the, the epidemic and you know, trying to figure out when this could all end. But there's a lot of variables that go into that, and a lot of them are just complete wild cards. So it's a little bit like reading tea leaves, in my opinion. But it's you know it's helpful, but it shouldn't uh, shouldn't be taken with a, a large grain of salt. 
Well, it's interesting that some people are trying to talk about an end date for this, and, and at the same time, uh, the medical experts, who are the ones we should be listening to when we're dealing with the pandemic, uh, are still talking about uh, about that curve, about that increase, and you know they're, they're saying flatten the curve. Uh, flattening the curve isn't really good enough in a situations like this, isn't it? We, we need to decrease that curve and move it downwards again. Exactly. So, you know, we're not going to really see some of these measures that have been put into place being walked back until we know that community transmission has has stopped. So we're a long way from that at this point. And, um, you know, luckily we've had a really measured response from public health in Canada um, and in Ontario in particular. And so it's you'll know... Um, What's going to happen because we we did a very sort of stepwise progression in terms of the measures. So basically, when we decide that there's no more transmission in the community, we'll just see a gradual walking back of those in in the same order they were rolled out. So you know, gradually we'll be um, allowing people to return to to work in limited numbers and uh, allowing people to use parks again. And, you know, so you can kind of just walk everything back that was rolled out and and you'll get a good sense of, of what that will look like. I don't want to get into this fool's game of trying to make predictions, or even if there's a formula that we should be following here, because this is brand new to an awful lot of us. Uh, you know, historically, of course, we know about pandemics in the past, but it's not something that we, most of us, have ever experienced before. But we kept hearing, for instance, uh, the, but the incubation period is about 14 days, and um, that 14-day number seems to keep popping up time and time again. Now, even talking about what the other end of this might look like. And, and one of the barometers I heard one of the experts talking about, this was on CNN, I think, last night, uh, a 14-day sustained reduction in the number of new COVID-19 cases. That's, that's two whole weeks where there uh, there's, would be a reduction. In other words, instead of seeing that, that, that spike, we'd start to see a, a decrease or a flattening of that. that that's a, a pretty tall order to actually get two straight weeks where we see data like that. Yeah, um, it is. And, and, you know, we we can look to China to see that that did end up happening eventually in in the at the center of all of all of their troubles there in Wuhan. But I think one of the things we need to remember is that there's often a, a second wave or mm-hmm. a, a, even a reactivation of um, the virus within people who've already had it sometimes. So those kinds of questions need to be. Um, to be answered before we really get back to uh, letting people move around completely freely without any restrictions. And so, um, you know, because that would that would basically undo everything we've done to this point. So we need to we need to remember this is a really long, slow process. Um, and in the meantime, you know, we just we either wait for that sustained community transmission to to end or we get some kind of uh, pharmaceutical product that can deal with it. So whether that's uh, a vaccine or some kind of uh, synthetic antibody that we can provide people with to trick their immune system into thinking they've had the disease already and, and create the antibodies for themselves, um, you know, we, we need to wait for that or just the natural sort of curve to die off of the spread. The Chinese situation is very instructive. I'm glad you brought that up because we heard probably, what, a week, 10 days ago, maybe a little longer, that, yeah, they, they, they've leveled off and they, there's no new cases, and they think, okay, we've got this thing under control. 
But it, as late as just a couple of days ago, we're starting to hear that those numbers are starting to go up again in Wanchu Province and in the city there. And, and they're, they're saying it's, it's being transported, it's being brought in from other areas. Nonetheless, if you've got the virus again, you've got the virus again, however it, it came there. So that, that second wave that everybody talks about seems to be a reality there now. Yeah, exactly. So that's not, not really... Um do, yeah, you're exactly right. So it's due to, to people bringing it back to the communities where they thought they had it under control. So you'll see that when we get to the point where we're walking back some of these restrictive measures, that it has to be done locally. So you can't just say, okay, Canada, go back to work. You know, we've got to look at each region carefully. And so even within that region, you may be back to whatever the new normal looks like, but you've got to still restrict travel. Um, so, there, you know, it's going to take a long time before we're back to um, the free movement of people um, because of the, the risk of reintroducing the virus into communities where it's been beaten down. And, and as you've told us in past discussions that we've had, we, we don't know really enough about this virus at this stage to make those determinations. I, I, I'm still hearing conflicting stories as to whether or not this is going to die off in the warm weather or not. Uh, some experts say yes, some say no. It looks like this is going to continue. It's not going to be seasonal. It's something we're going to have to deal with for, for the next little while. Until we can make those determinations, it's, it's really very unpredictable to, to try to predict anything at this stage. Absolutely. And that's frustrating. It's really, it's really hard, uh, for people to wrap their minds around, you know, that this could just be in the indefinite norm, you know, going forward. But I think that, um, it's better to be upfront about what we don't know because we don't want to be giving people hope that this is all of us going to die down over the summer because it'll be nice and warm. Uh, and then that doesn't happen. So, uh, I think we don't really have any evidence at this point that it will be affected by warmer weather. It may slow slightly, but we don't really think it's going to kind of just uh, taper off like the flu does. So, um, you know, there's there's not a lot to be said about when uh, the timeline for getting back to normal will be, whatever that looks like. But um, I think we just have to remember that if we rush back too quickly, all of this will have been for nothing. So. You know, we've invested all this time and effort now to to control it with these restrictive measures, and it would be such a shame if we did it too quickly. Yeah, and again, the Chinese situation is instructive in that regard. China's a huge, huge country, of course, uh, not unlike Canada. Uh, and, and they have moderate and temperate areas. Does They do very cold areas. And it didn't seem to discriminate uh, when, when it was ra- ra- racing through China. Some of the warmer areas, some of the, the more temperate areas were, in fact, just as much as, as some of the colder areas. So I, I don't know what you can extrapolate from that, but it kind of indicates that this thing is going to go where it wants, when it wants. Yeah, and it may, it may just settle into a seasonal pattern all its own. So in the northern hemisphere, we see influenza as, as primarily an um, infection that occurs in the winter, but in, you know, in Australia, they have several flu seasons. So mm-hmm. um, we, we just don't know at this point. And um, so, it, yeah, it's, we're, we're learning every day. So we just have to sort of stay tuned and commit to uh, the path that we're on and, and not rush back too quickly. And, you know, so there's lots of proposals about how that could look um, I don't know if you have discussed on your program before, but there's this idea about an immunity passport that could be given 
to people who have been tested and have confirmed immunity to the virus, they might Mm -hmm. be allowed to go back to work. Um, There's so many ethical issues to do with creating a sort of two-tiered society by doing that. And, you know, will it encourage people to run out and get infected so that they can get back to work? And that's a real concern for people who are financially really struggling. So I think I think we need to think long and hard about how we do get back to work because there's some real thorny issues with, with the issues like immunity passports or digital certificates about immunity. You really have to be careful going down that road. I know there are a couple of politicians down in the States who shall remain nameless that are talking about why don't we just corral all the people that have got it and set them over here and everybody else can get on with their lives. That's a rather dystopian approach to take to something like that. And I, I really don't think that's ever going to get any serious consideration. Well, you know, it, it does happen in places like South Africa with tuberculosis. Um, we have uh, huge sort of ghettos where people who are infected with active TB are put, and it's pretty horrendous. So I think, you know, it's not uh, unheard of as a strategy, but it's certainly not very uh, humane, and it's not very uh, a very moral response to the, to the outbreak. Let's talk about the immunity for just a second. You know, because there's that argument to be made, and I think there's a lot of science behind that. That if you're exposed to this, uh, that you obviously your body will build up some immunity to it. Uh, do you have to actually suffer the symptoms to that, or just be exposed to it? So these are good questions. I think you know, normally I think we would say that you just have to be exposed to it. Um, but things like people's overall immune status will really impact what kind of a response they mount to the virus. So there won't, it won't be like um, there's one sort of level of immunity to this. We know from when we vaccinate people with poor nutritional status who have, you know, just not a very robust immune system to begin with, they don't mount the same kind of response to a vaccine that they do, uh, that people who have really good, well-functioning immune systems would mount. So, the notion of immunity itself is a little bit slippery. And so, you know, what what we would need is a test that would be able to not just check for antibodies, but um, we would need to know how long that immunity would last and whether it's enough to prevent uh, a sort of reactivation of the virus in the body. Well, and to that point, uh, Professor, I would think that those that have pre-existing conditions uh, would still be at risk anyway, no matter what, as they are in flu season, you know, whether it's diabetes or any number of other different things, cardiopulmonary issues, things of that nature, they're, they're still going to be high risk no matter what. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're trying to tell people to not get this bug. So, you know, the basing a strategy on um, getting back to work that involves contracting the virus is, is probably uh, not going to work out too well for, for us, I think. Well, especially because of what you mentioned. I mean, with people with conditions like that uh, who could be diabetic, we already know there's a lot of people probably have diabetes that don't know they have it uh, if they're exposed to this. So you, again, to get back into that, that dark side of things, I mean, do you just – that's not – I don't want to be collateral damage, and I don't want anybody else to be collateral damage in some you know, ill-thought-of procedure like that to let's get everybody exposed to it so we build up this immunity to it. Uh, there would be casualties nonetheless. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think we need to, to think long and hard about what what we do about protecting people who really can't get uh, get the virus uh, and, you know, be expected to recover in, in a, any kind of 
uh, acceptable way. You know, so there are there are always people who have immune compromised immune systems, and they also, you know, things like diabetes are not distributed equally across the population. We know that it's associated with low socioeconomic status. So there's a real sort of social justice component to this because the most vulnerable people are very, very often um, the poorest people in our communities as well. So, you know, if we if we forget about that, then we're going to have um, a really unjust situation on our hands. I, I guess the takeaway here, we're just about out of time, Professor, is uh, there's, there's no fast solution for this. This is going to take time. That's all there is to it. And we, I, I know patience is going to be at a premium, but the fact is that we've got to go through a process here and uh, we're nowhere near uh, getting to that point yet. This is going to ride out for some time, I would think. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, we should remember that it's not that helpful to pit public health against the sort of economy's health because they're very tied to one another. You know, if we don't manage the outbreak well, uh, you know, it's going to impact the economy too. So it's it's really not a good way to characterize the struggle. You know, the, the economy... Uh, health is really tied to our own health and so we'll figure this out it's just going to take some time exactly and i don't want to get too simplistic about it but if we get people healthy again the economy tends to improve if people are not healthy the economy is going to suffer and those those seem to be hard and fast truths always always reassuring to have a, a discussion with you on this professor thanks so much for the time today stay well yep you too great to talk to you Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Professor Allison Thompson from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.